I just watched the movie Slacker the other day. Mm. Have you seen it? It's mm. the Richard um, Linklater. It's like it's the first film he mm. made. Yeah, really. And it's it's about Austin, Texas, so it looks a lot like Athens. Yeah. But there's a moment in the movie where two characters are supposed to go to a movie and they realize they're late and they just say, "Well, we'll just meet back here in two hours." And like, I mean, they they made plans. They didn't have to check their phone or anything. Oh, yeah. Burn yeah. The next yeah. <laughs> little montage kind of burns over two hours for them. Yeah. Do they come back? You're like, well, we don't do that anymore. Yeah. So here I am with, I'm Nathan Koskovich, and I'm here with Ryan. You want to say hi and introduce yourself, Mr. Gravel? Hey, I'm Ryan Gravel. And what do you do? Not that people in Atlanta don't know what you do. <laughs> I am an urban designer and, you know, work on different kinds of projects. <laughs> yeah, you work on multiple projects. Uh, One in particular. But... One that most people are familiar with, and yeah. I guess that'll come up. So um, we usually start with a little biography. Uh, yes, not bibliography, uh, but you, you're, um, a Georgia boy pretty much. Almost. I was born in Louisiana. Um, oh yeah. And my family moved here when I was two. So born, you know, not quite born, but certainly bred here Your memories. in Metro Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah, and so you grew up. I don't think you had anybody in your family that had a design background or anything like that. No, my dad is an engineer by training and um, worked in, by the time you know I was in school, was more on the construction side of things. But he's an engineer and was always tinkering around on our house. We were um, jack, jacked up the back of the house to replace the wall and um, always fixing things and changing things around. So right. grew up around construction. Yeah, and, and engineering is a kind of design, even if engineers don't realize it sure, a lot of times. Yeah. Um, Definitely shaping the the built environment. Right. But I do remember one time we had this tree in the front yard, a hickory tree, and it had this low branch um, right ne- along the sidewalk, and we had a uh, like a porch swing underneath it. It wasn't a, on a porch. And we used to sit out there all the time, and the, the branch created this sort of canopy enclosed the space really nice and and my dad decided to cut it one day and I said we'll never sit out here again and he said ah that's not true he cut it and of course we never sat out there again so that was that was kind of a moment growing up where you realized you had more of a facility in a department than your dad the spatial did. understanding of like yeah. why why that was such a comfortable space why would we not be there why would why would we sit in the shade when we can sit in the sun dad right. uh, it wasn't even sunny after that it was just it didn't feel uh, I don't know, it just changed the whole dynamic. Yeah, I didn't have that feeling of sitting under a canopy and looking out on the world. Yeah. And this was in suburban Atlanta, basically. Yeah, I grew up in Chambly, um, actually on the outskirts of Chambly, uh, in a neighborhood that was almost certainly incentivized by the construction of 285. So um, back in 285 was built in the 60s as a four-lane. Mm-hmm. And so we grew up basically back and forth between his office and the one of the first Home Depots on Beaufort Highway, and then the other direction to Premier Mall, back when there were cows across the street, and uh, the food court had not yet been invented. And uh, so, I remember, yeah, I remember when Gwinnett Place Mall opened. It was a a dirt road running up mm-hmm. to it before you got to Pleasant Hill, I think, or right. something like that. So, um, yeah, and it's, it's always. The suburban growth, growing up in suburbia, always mm-hmm. comes up when people talk about why they want to get into mm-hmm. urbanism. Yeah, you know, but the neighborhood that I realized, um, and I'm, we'll probably talk about my book later, but I realized that while I was writing it that the community that I grew up in was really 
a transition between an urban area and a sort of more refined compartmentalized suburbs that you see today um, we could walk to school the school was in the neighborhood and even though there weren't sidewalks we could still get there we could walk up to the shopping center shambly plaza which was not any sort of replacement for like a real walking commercial district but with it was within walking distance yeah. we could sort of explore the sort of uh, commercial side of the neighborhood and my mom had a store um, a little quilt store in downtown Shambly, which is not far away. And that was like a small town almost. Yeah, there were, there were, there, that was close enough and they were kind of the roots of that. And I, I grew up further out in Gwinnett where it was literally all farms around us when we moved in yeah. when I was four. And then 13 years later mm-hmm. when, or 14 years later when I went off to college, it was all neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So that was, so you, I guess what you had a little piece of street grid right. around there mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing. Um, and so why did you decide to go to Georgia Tech and study architecture? How did that come about? You know, I used to draw uh, house plans in science class in high school. Um, I used to draw, um, you know, different, it was basically suburban homes. I would draw in in science on the little lab, uh, sort of gridded, uh, paper. Yeah. And, um, I don't know. I, I was always interested in houses and buildings and things and, had no idea what I was walking into. Um, didn't like it for about two weeks uh, when I started Georgia Tech in 1991, um, but then pretty quickly fell in love with uh, the sort of real ideas behind architecture and you know, got really interested in, in, in what it was really about. What, what didn't you like for the first couple of weeks? Well, you know, they were talking about theoretical ideas about, you know, and I didn't really like modern architecture because right. I didn't understand it, you know. Yeah. I didn't even understand traditional architecture. Um, I didn't understand it all. So as I started to learn more about it, I got sort of more interested in it. Yeah, education is kind of a bit of indoctrination because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had a similar experience. There were kids that came in who were like, they knew who Rem Coolhouse and who. Into uh, s- starting they, out in architecture school? There seemed to be some, and I don't know who these people were or yeah. where they came from, but mm-hmm. they were also the same people who already had a style. And you're like, you're 18, right. you don't yeah. have a style. <laughs> yeah. You don't even have a credit card. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so you're studying buildings, basically, as an yeah. architect, and you yeah. got your undergrad in architecture. Yes, and I did a year abroad in Paris. One of the real strengths of the Georgia Tech's program at that time was a year abroad, and they sent about 25 students over and... Yeah, I did, the, I did the same program, and especially after living in Atlanta. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a real mature city with yeah. a real mature urban context. Yeah. And um, one of the interesting things about that is how you change mm-hmm. your behavior, but not your personality, because right. the city prioritizes different things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something, unless you've spent a lot of time mm-hmm. in a city, not a Sunbelt city, mm-hmm built around the car, mm-hmm. you don't realize that. You yeah. think that that's you're going to always love your car. And I'm right. going, no, yeah. if, if it was a different construct. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I lived for nine months without getting in a car. And, yeah. you know, I, um, uh, I in the, within the first month, sort of lost, lost about 15 pounds. I was in the best shape of my life because yeah. I was walking everywhere and I was eating fresh food. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the relationship between our built environment and our personal health and well-being and all that became really clear. And it's not about, 
you know, has to be some dense urban environment, but it's the connection between what I got fascinated with was the construct, the relationship between infrastructure and the way that, lot, that we live our lives, that the, that the infrastructure is a foundation, not only for moving people around and moving water and sewer, but it's the foundation for our economy and our social life and our culture. And that has, that has real implications for the way that we live. Yeah, it's it's not neutral. It's not also you right. multiple ways you can solve right. the problems of providing urban right. services, and they have different implications. Yeah. and then people being the same all right. over the world respond differently. Right, and it doesn't have to look like Paris. It's just under. It's just it was really fascinated with that relationship. Yeah, um, and so then came back to, um, to back home, graduated, and that summer lived with my parents and took a job an architecture job where I had to drive across the top end of 285 every day. And about the same amount of time it took me to get to school in Paris, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but it was, you know, in Paris, when you come to school, you know, you see the same people on the street, you see the guy at the tobacco, you see the guy sitting yeah. at the restaurant or the women at the ticket booth in the metro. You see, it's a social experience. You have your commuting buddies, you're all waiting on the same bus. At yeah, the same you time. see, yeah. And even if you don't know them, you, you're participating in each other's lives in a way that you really don't when you're on the highway, when everybody's sort of face forward with their music blaring, not really engaging with each other. And so, you know, there I was driving to work across 285, which carries 250,000 people a day, but there's. I didn't talk to anybody. I wasn't part of anybody's lives. Mm -hmm. And so you only see the people at home and then you see the receptionist when you walk in the door. Yeah. And there's, um, spending time in that public sphere, there's an equality there you have between each other that Mm -hmm. you don't have in an environment that doesn't share that. And you're actually citizens together, even if it's not activated. Um, and you bridge, it helps bridge divides between people. You, you, you feel some kind of empathy for people who are different from you, even if you're not really, engaging with them or talking with them they're part of your life they're no longer faith face right. faceless excuse right. me um and i think that has real implications uh, not only for the sort of built environment but also for i think it's contributed pretty significantly to the political polarization that we see today yeah i think so I, and, I, and i think it goes back to that um idea that it's it becomes faceless and you're not in that context and right. it's probably more than anything i feel it drives fear mm-hmm. you can see people in atlanta who don't deal with diverse people right. economically or socially when they're out on the street, they're right. very nervous and right. they could be, you know, in Midtown, which is one of the most gentrified neighborhoods in Atlanta. And they still are very uncomfortable because they're not used to not having a physical barrier right. of privacy and a legal mm-hmm. barrier between mm-hmm. them and the homeless guy. They're, mm-hmm. they're there because they're homeless guys. Sorry. Yeah. Or the, well, and they have every, person. every right to the street that you do. Yeah. They're citizens. It's a public space. Yeah. yeah. So there's a, a, a general disfac- dis- dissatisfaction with the built environment that was kind of crystallized for you between the experience of living in Paris, and it could have been any city, right. and then returning to Atlanta mm-hmm. and living in suburbia and commuting in yeah. to the And city. I don't even know that I would characterize it as dissatisfaction as much as it was almost turning that on its head a little bit and like opportunity, like what can we do here? what, 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 how can we take this place and, and make it into something else and better, you know, cause you, you really start to look at all those lanes of traffic and the parking lots and all that. I mean, one way, I guess the glass half empty way of looking at it is, you know, despair and like it's tragic and a disaster. But the other way to look at it is 
these are spaces for opportunity and innovation and Atlanta's never going to be Paris anyway. We're going to be something else. Right. I had really learned a lot speaking of cool house about, um, I read his work a lot and was really inspired by his perspective on Atlanta because obviously he has a lot, a lot of not so nice things to say. <laughs> At least he did in the nineties. Yeah. But, um, if you really read it, it's much more hopeful than a lot of other critiques of Atlanta, which is, that as we start to solve the problems we've created in that we have an opportunity in that space to create, to make it into something equally as interesting as Paris, completely different, but interesting. And I think with cool house, he has that ability. You're talking about difference between despair Mm -hmm. and opportunities. He Mm -hmm. sees a lot of things that other people criticize as weaknesses as strengths. Like Atlanta's has a sort of facelessness to it. But that actually is a strength, and that's why it becomes mm-hmm. more and more invested in in that it it can morph into anything. Right. I that mean, the, one of, of the most compelling things about Atlanta right now, I think, is that you know uh, it's it's going to be a different place in twenty years, and to be a part of that transformation and what it redefining what it means to be a twenty first century city is pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, Boston is always going to be Boston, and San Francisco always San Francisco, Chicago the same it's not that they're not going to change they are but they're not going to change in the, in the wholesale kind of way that i i think that atlanta is absolutely bound to change and not not all i mean that don't that shouldn't be taken as sort of negatively like we're going to destroy everything i think actually what we're going to do is we're going to take the the wonderful things about atlanta and and amplify them um to really become what this what this city is all about right and i, th- I think that's an important point to make and that people who are working on changing the way the built environment are working are not actually talking about changing the options, but expanding the options. Right. If you right. want to live in suburbia and drive in and do all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, you can still do that. But what we're really talking about is changing how we construct our cities to allow more options. So right. now if you want to live upstairs from a bodega and right. walk to a coffee shop and right. not own a car, that will now become an right. option, and it's not right. an option in Atlanta right now. Right, you pretty much have to have a car or yeah. a means of access to a car. I, you know, it's certainly uh, easier to live with without a car today than it was uh, twenty years ago when yeah. I was in school. Yeah, um, so it is it is different, but um, but yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> so um, so you went back to tech for planning and you learned yeah, all so about that. Yeah, so I, I, I um, you know, I had an architecture job that year, but I w- it wasn't really the kind of work I wanted to do, and I was got you know really developed my interest in in urban planning, and so I went back to graduate school at Tech in '96. Um, Just in time for at, the Olympics. right after the Olympics, after the fall after the Olympics yeah. started, and um, in city planning, and did that for. Uh, about a, about a year in, I was really missing design and wanted to, um, keep my foot in that door in that place as well. So I stuck around, um, and got both degrees, also a master's of architecture. It's both degrees. I'm sorry. I, I was thinking ahead, urban planning and city planning and architecture, city yeah. planning and architecture. So okay. I finished my city planning degree and, you know, overlap some of my electives to get, to get two degrees in three and a half years. Well, that might be a good, um, opportunity to talk about what city planning was then and how it's expanded into maybe different ways of looking at it? Well, you know, I I don't even know if I can answer that question. City planning is a really broad field and lots of people um, work in, you know, not only do the other students coming to the program come from very different, varied sort of backgrounds, I think even more broad than architecture. Mm -hmm. 
um, where they go afterwards is, e is equally broad. So cert certainly some people go into your traditional role of city planner at a municipality or county or level sort of economic development or some kind of zoning, those kinds of things. But most people actually go into, you know, um, design fields or they go into um, real estate development or any number of financial services and all kinds of other things. I don't even know how to name them, but it's really broad. So I don't know what city planning is today. I do. It is pretty evident, you know, and I'm sure, you know, you've seen this too, you know, the, the, the fields of architecture and planning and landscape architecture for that matter really split, you know, in the middle of the last century, became, sort of went off and did their own things. But now, but yeah, part of that. yeah. Right. And now they're converging back together yeah. um, in a fascinating way. And it's a little bit of turf wars too over things, which is fun to, to have that discussion. But at the end of the day, you know, the, it's a pretty fuzzy line, I think, between um, architectural design and city planning. Um, there is a line in there somewhere, but it's not a it's not a very clear cut line in my mind. And I, I think that's where most of the interesting architects that I know, I think the the arch academic architecture, the star architecture that people look at, mm -hmm. and uh, we talked about Ellen to Ellen about this, is really kind of retrograde. It's re mm -hmm. it's moved away from the modernist idea of kind of as expressed by the Eames. Mm -hmm. the best for the most for the least mm -hmm. towards let's make beautiful sculptural objects that the rich can buy that mm -hmm. then become a symbol of their wealth and taste. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's what you're buying. And I think the people who are really serving the modernist agenda, mm -hmm. which is a, a modern agenda of mm -hmm. democracy mm -hmm. and capitalism and socialism mm -hmm. and, um, you know, growing awareness are the people who are looking at those com combinations of architecture and landscape architecture mm -hmm. and urban planning and moving mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned the different fields people go into in uh, urban planning. You've actually done a little bit of both because you were with the city of Atlanta for a while. Yeah, so I, when I graduated, uh, when I finished graduate school, I went to work for um, Server Barber, Chitton Hurtline, worked for, as an architect for four and a half years. And then I went, the Beltline sort of came out of the, started building momentum and um i went to work in nonprofit advocacy world for a while a couple years mm -hmm. um, then i went to the city of atlanta to work as a planner um, and then went back into private practice and sort of since then sort of this hybrid version between architecture and urban design urban planning i also right. did some planning work as a um, student in graduate school right um Wow, you just brushed over a whole... Oh, I'm sorry. Did I fast forward through that? I don't know. I don't know. I was going <laughs> to ask come you. come back to anything. Um, so what was... What were the kind of typical things you did at when you were with the city? Well, I was only there for a short while, actually. We... Um, the, the Beltline had gotten off the ground. We passed the redevelopment plan in the tax allocation district at the end of 2005, and which sort of became the, the impetus and um, sort of obligation, political sort of obligation for the city to start delivering on that promise. Um, and so about six months later, I was working at that time for the Beltline Partnership right. in an advocacy kind of role. And um, there was a new planning commissioner at the city and he wanted me to come in as his, on part of his team. We had a little Beltline team at City Hall in the Bureau of Planning. And the, the idea was to go to look at all the planning related issues relative to the Beltline. Um, about five or five months in, um, 
uh, it wasn't really going to work out. So um, it wasn't going to turn out in the way that he had envisioned. Right. And that became clear. And, you know, so it was sort of, uh, it was kind of time for that to change. So there, there's, there's some, I'm just, if I can unpack that for my sure. understanding, there's working to, to visualize the design like we would think physically, but then also working to put in the political and economic oh, sure. devices. Yeah. And design is kind of, that's yeah. kind of your urban design. And right. the other step would be people who are actually writing zoning laws yeah. and doing. So we, planning. while I was there, we, uh, we were laying the groundwork for what would become the sub area planning process, which was determining, um, future land use, street connectivity, parks, um, you know, historic resources, heights and density and zoning, sort of the future plan of the city in this mile wide belt uh, f with the centered on the belt line. Um, yeah, so the sub area means just a specific area in the city. It's, well, it's right, it's the belt line um, a mile on either side, sort of wide swath of the city following the corridor, and then uh, cut into, you know, pie shapes, you know, yeah. into ch 10 chunks. And I guess we've buried the lead, but purposely too. The the belt line oh, right. started with your thesis project. Right. Um, not sure to say you're the belt line designer. So many hands have taken a hold yeah. of it since then. And a lot of people. But um, certainly, if anybody's name is associated with mm -hmm. authorship on it, it's you. Um, and then, of course, as you said, you went into private practice, right. and I don't think people realize how much planning happens. Oh yeah. On the private side, right. which is actually something that probably needs to be addressed in that large chunks of our city environment, urban environment are being built by people whose agendas are very narrow. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, let me finish one thing. The other thing I did sure. at the city was we did the zoning overlay district. So that, and that certainly has design implications for um, the development of properties along the way. And architects are always sort of coming up against, um, you know, whether those were good decisions or not. But, um, so, you know, sort of laying that. So that was some pretty traditional kind of uh, planning work. Yeah, and so. And, and then the, the sub-area plans, which came after, really after I left, we had set them up, but um, they happened a, a, in a different way than we had planned, but they were done by consultants, each of the 10 sections by a different team. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I don't, that's the way that they happened. and. Um, your question is 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 fair about how those are done, the the speed at which they're done, the commitment to them over time, and um, and the quality of how they are um, interconnected. But I don't even necessarily want to be negative about that because you know the city, the Beltline grew out of the sort of grassroots movement. It was sort of being cobbled together in a way, right? And we had to we had to operate in that way. We didn't ever, we've never, but even now we don't. It's not like we there's any point in time have we had all the money in the world and the, all the resources to do the thing in the, in the quote unquote right way that you would do mm -hmm. if you, if you had those resources, we've been making it happen. And, um, and that's the way it happened. And it's, you know, it turned out, has turned out pretty well. I think it's about time for them to be updated. Yeah. I think they're beginning to start that process again. Yeah. It's, you know, and it, it's needed because the city has changed so much in that time yeah. period. And, and so our, even our post recession, the expectations for the quarter, are, are a lot different. You know, before the recession, the expectation I think was that primarily the quarter would be redeveloped by, um, you know, condos of a retail, you know, for very, but now you see Ponce City Market, you see 
new office buildings and things happening in the quarter, which I don't think many people were really expecting. So it's, I think it's healthy and good, the changes that have come. Mm-hmm. But And also now that people can see the East Side Trail and they see it physically and they understand it in a way, yeah, that makes it real. And I think revisiting some of those decisions would be really strategic. Yeah, I think it's a, it's an excellent kind of... Yeah, we're also learn. seeing some really bad decisions happening. You know, the, the, the development down at Glenwood Park... Um, the newest version of that is not exactly uh, in keeping with the larger Beltline vision. And um, those are things that might have been um, uh, done differently if, if under a different policy, if we'd set the, if we were, had been able earlier to, to set that zoning up in a way that would um, require better quality more density. Um, and part of, I think part of what happened there is that why the value of being able to show people is there is that um, when the planning was coming in there, people weren't understanding, the neighborhoods weren't really right. understanding what was meant by density. Right. And density being a little different right. than crowding, which right. is like you still have your yeah. private realm and control over it. Um, you talked, you briefly talked about the kind of changing of the zoning for the overlay district. And mm-hmm. I think, I don't know how much you want to talk about that, but I think it's for people to understand those tools are all in place and zoning mm-hmm. setbacks, yep. um, density of floor area ratios, all those things. And really what a lot of times what we're talking about is just flex, not changing policy, but flexing the math numbers that go into it to make more options possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I, just, I say that just so people understand it's not, it's not a radical rethinking of how we do things. It's no. just a thinking of what goal we're turning those tools towards. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the zoning overlay for the Beltline was primarily to make sure that um, the we didn't end up with a bunch of parking garages and loading zones and dumpsters facing the corridor. You know? Yeah, well, you want to treat it like a public right. space. Yeah, um, that was the primary goal. And, of course, it, it, can, it has some controls on land use and, um, you know, what you can do on the property or not. But we – but that first uh, – that first pass was really about just making sure the basics get done. I think that's something that talk about turning their back on the belt line. People still struggle with the mm-hmm. idea that the belt line is a, a public, it's not literally structured that way because of just the complexities of working in the American system and every system has <laughs> complexities, but it's a, it's a public right of way. And for mm-hmm. centuries we had streets before cars. Mm-hmm. And so we don't, but right. we've become so indebtedly with streets right. and roads being synonymous. Right that yeah. the idea is like, well, they're going to pull up in their car and you're like, yeah. we're, we're not designing for what's here, which is what city plans about. We're designing right. for so the Beltline is a specific project. And you said you were working on other projects and maybe you can position the Beltline in a bigger world of ideas or sure. goals, or at least how it fits into your expanding practice. Sure. Thanks. Um, the obviously you know even in the early days with the beltline um you know it's a big idea it's ambitious the public loved it Uh, we got a lot of attention from the press and the story became a a pretty big story even even outside of atlanta and so as we've grown and become more successful i've had the opportunity to go to other cities and other places and share our story right and along the way i've been really still sort of maintaining my interest and obsession maybe with infrastructure and that role for our lives um was also interested in researching how the beltline how ideas from the beltline can can uh, extend to other places Mm -hmm. not every city has a loop of old railroads but what can we learn from this that's applicable Um, and then looking at other cities and what 
is going on there that's equally kind of interesting and transformational. Right. And right. so I, um, so as I go to these other cities to uh, share our story, I learn about projects that they're doing. And over the course of the last several years have sort of collected a catalog of these projects. That's probably 40 or 50 projects and they're all in different stages of implementation. And some of them are old railroads that are also degraded uh, waterways, uh, obsolete roadways, but they're all sort of these linear corridors of infrastructure, uh, power lines that are also being, that are being repurposed for some new transformative effect. So whether that's uh, greenways and trails, transit, um, art, um, health, economic development, um, any number of those things, you know, the, the full spectrum of the Beltline, but re rearranged in some way. Um, it's interesting to see that happening everywhere. It's like the communities are, um, you know, looking around for something new and they're, I think, you know, repurposing this, their parts of their community for some, something new, some new purpose. And, and in the process, just like the Beltline, um, not only changing the physical form of the city, but really changing the way that we think about the places that we live and the decisions that we make about living. Yeah, no, I think that brings up a lot of good points. I was going to, um, we talked about fresh food in Paris earlier, mm -hmm. and it, there's, um, I, I think this is a simple example, and you can tell me if it's right or wrong, about how the building form affects culture in deeper ways, mm -hmm. is that the idea was uh, suburbia. There's some actually smart ideas about that. Cities sure. were incredibly dirty, mm -hmm. uh, infectious places before modern medicine. And right. so they, a great way to reduce that is reduce human contact by stretching it out. Right. And then you have to overcome that through some means. So it was the automobile right. and nobody was really aware of the environmental cost, right. but there's a time cost too. And so shopping patterns change. If you live in Paris, you're buying your food every day for dinner because you're walking past a stand and you right. can't load up your trunk with a bunch right. of food. Right. And the conversation with the, the the grocer might be, is this fresh? And he might ask you, well, what time are you going to eat? Mm -hmm. You're like, well, later today. Okay, it'll be, it'll be right by then. Yeah. Um, meantime, in suburbia, it's a long trip. It's a destination trip. Mm -hmm. So not only in the car do you have the means to buy a bunch of food, right. but you have to to be efficient. Right. And then that changes the kind of food we have because it has right. to last longer. It has to be... Right. And, yeah, the, and technology right. through the uh, industrialization of agriculture allowed us to do that and chemicals yeah. and all the, I mean, all the, um, uh, ingredients that went into our food to make them last longer and, um, stay fresher for longer, um, really changed was part of, I mean, this was all part of a much larger kind of cultural momentum. It wasn't just about any one of those things. They absolutely kind of overlap. I mean, you're right. Cities were not, cities were different places at that time and, and the, the desires for a cultural desire to escape from those challenges, um, you know, and, and come out to the countryside where it's the open road and fresh air. And, you know, it, it was a very positive, um, um, view of the future. You know, we, and it, we, you know, we didn't call it sprawl at the time we called it the future and it was, yeah. and it was, and it overlapped, you know, so the, the, but the changes in cities and city form overlapped with, you know, um, with other sort of innovations you know, science was curing disease and lifting us to the moon and the sexual revolution was breaking down barriers and mm -hmm. the civil rights movement was marching forward, you know, to fulfill the nation's promise in that way. All these things were changing and, but they were changing in a way that was very, in many ways, um, visionary, um, and a, a, and a positive for the future. Obviously there were downsides. I don't want to make light of that. Not everybody could participate in that right. movement. Um, 
But in a lot of ways, all that was kind of a culmination of the Enlightenment, right. where it was man can study things and understand it, and if you get enough knowledge, you can control right. everything. And right. if you look at especially a lot of modernist city planning, which mm -hmm. is extreme leftist communist mm -hmm. ideas that got run through kind of American and Western European ideas to develop right. these suburban models. There's an idea that we can control everything and develop the perfect mm -hmm. society. And I think one thing that's happened in that period too is kind of the evolution of postmodern thinking where we realize we can't know everything. Our observations yeah. alter it. Right. We're realizing the fallacy of that. All right. And, and that, and that realization is really changing. I think that's, that's what's, feeding this new cultural momentum that we're starting to see. I mean, all these other projects I'm, I'm seeing, I think that they're the very uh, beginnings of a, of a new thing. Sprawl didn't happen overnight. It happened by millions of decisions over a long period of time with people innovating in different things. A limited access highway didn't just show up one day. There were one city would uh, come up with an idea. They'd have an innovation. Other people would go visit it. They'd take that idea mm -hmm. back to their cities. These are things that evolved over time. And I think what we're witnessing now is the same thing. That, that ability or desire to control nature and control the world that you just spoke of is perfectly represented in some of these projects, especially the water-oriented ones. A great example is the LA River. Right. 51-mile ch concrete channel channelized in the 30s because we're going to control this wild river um you know today being repurposed um for some new future vision for the city um but it's it's challenging and you know it's hemmed in by railroads and highways and but there's been a grassroots movement since the 80s to make it into something better and and they're making an enormous amount of progress and the irony of course is that as this thing as these things change and this cultural momentum shifts just like it did in sprawl the the government agencies, the business models are all sort of reorienting themselves to capture um, that the sort of zeitgeist of that time. So right. the Army Corps of Engineers, which was the one who channelized the, the river in the first place, now just have agreed to a billion dollar restoration of the Glendale Narrows. You know, now they're the ones sort of mm -hmm. starting to put the pieces back um, to fit some new model for the future. And, and we've seen that to a, a similar but lesser degree in Atlanta where or Georgia, where 20 years ago working with uh, Georgia Department of Transportation to do anything other than move cars as fast as you can through a neighborhood was right. just not on table. Right. And now they're working with the Buckhead Alliance to do a bike lane along 400. Yep. They're much more open to street scraping yep. and pedestrian access. And it's, it's that kind of awakening that we can't control everything. There's a little bit of chaos. Yeah. And, and for things to really percolate, you need yeah. to allow some open-ended input. And that's yeah. really what's beginning to kind of happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no, GDOT took a, a lane out of each direction on Ponce de Leon Avenue. I mean, made it into a buffered bike lane. Yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty remarkable. That's a big shift and yeah. really positive for the city. I mean, it's not enough and we need to do a lot more, but um, it, it's an indication that things have changed. Yeah, and it's, in many ways that's infuriated a lot of, drivers but that, that goes back to the idea that they've only ever known a driving environment and so we're prioritizing that when you prioritize it it then feeds on itself and if yeah. you can shift the priority to other modes of transit and thus other citizens right. you can achieve a more balanced approach yeah. to transit and your, so sometimes your, your point earlier was brilliant you know that the street the, the street is for the street is for people yeah and and how we choose to operate within that street how we choose to move in that street is our choice and, yeah. and it's a cultural choice and it's a political choice uh, but it also changes over time and so the streets that one day you know had 
horses and buggies and later streetcars and pedestrians and sometimes occasionally bicycles and right that all changed and then at some point we decided that we were going to use cars and so we narrowed the sidewalks and we widened the lanes and we and we occupied them by cars but there's been there should be no expectation that that's not going to change again and of course in lots of places it is and then lots of cases it doesn't even come at the expense of cars i mean uh, new york is a great example they close broadway as it goes through times square and uh, not only did that you gain a tremendous amount of land for um, public space for people who are there to enjoy the city and spend their money, but you also uh, improved the traffic flow through Times Square. Yeah, yeah. So that's good for cars. Well, there's, there is something about grid street planning as opposed to the other thing about the, the controlled access is, again, that the idea that you can control everything. And you yeah. find it draws more people, it draws more people, and it funnels and it locks them in, where a grid system allows people to kind of spread out and find right. their way around, and, right. and traffic can be... Um, I was speaking with some people. Architects have started moving into downtown again, and they're mm-hmm. talking about how much easier it is for them to get into downtown than their midtown offices, yeah. because there's just more access yeah, points. Yeah, there's more access. So right. um, a lot of a lot of that. I mean, there's not a whole lot of difference between downtown and midtown, except for the way that the highways came through the city and and cut it off and created traffic jams. Basically, yeah. There's so many limited ways uh, to move, especially north of 10th Street. Um, it, it is a challenge for midtown. Yeah. Um, and they're working on that. So you're a planner. You're now, you have your own company that yeah. everybody can hire sure. to do their planning. Sure, please do. Yeah. Um, I have just started a company called Six Pitch. And, you know, it's I'm casting a wide net. It is planning. Um, What's the story behind Six Pitch, the name again? When uh, you sent out your announcement, I think it was in there and I forgot <laughs> it. You know, I, it's not supposed to be super clever. It's just, you know, I like the number six. Um, it's short word and, um, and to pitch on ideas, to propose an idea. Yeah. And so the ideas behind the name is that, you know, in response to any need, um, you know, any, the, our response to any need sh- can be built around multiple ideas that we don't have to just do one thing. The Beltline isn't just about transportation. It's also about building community. It's also about economic development. It's also about enriching their lives and solving stormwater problems and traffic. And, you know, it's all kinds of things. Yeah. And that if we thought, you know, highways by contrast or you know maybe not one thing but it's a very limited number of things that they do yeah and that goes back to that kind of scientific model let's right. distill this out into this right. one thing and you lose a right. lot of um, well but in my my obsession with infrastructure is you know they they these systems should do more should do more than they yeah. do and and not only because they can and it's more efficient and effective to do that um, but because it's more it makes us all healthier and more prosperous and more um you know, it's the found, literally the foundation for our economy and our culture and our social life and everything else about us. Yeah, a, a lot of people lose track of that. They kind of think of, if you're not working it every day, and, and right. I'm sure this works in other environments that right. I'm, I don't know anything about, yeah. they take it for granted. They think yeah. of the urban environment like a natural environment. Right. But really, it's completely designed. And as humans, we live in an almost 100% designed environment. Right. And there are decisions being made by people and mm-hmm. decisions with agendas and decisions with opinions. Right. And they load that environment with things and that environment affects how you interact with it. It's kind of like somebody put together a buffet yeah. and you're coming by to put your salad together and you may not notice the other ingredients that aren't there. Right. But they're not there. And if you stop and think about right. it, you might start saying, well, gosh, I'd really yeah. like some ham. Yeah. Our, li- our lives are uh, both enriched and limited by 
our infrastructure. You know, we can either, we, it may, we may not realize what we don't have access to or what we don't do because we don't have the, because it's not in front of us. To, right. It's yeah. not in front of us. But you know, it's also the, you know, I was going to bring up the T's plus. I mean, you know, people were offered a list of projects. Um, they weren't offered a vision for their lives, you know? So I think people, their gut reaction or their instinctive reaction to questions like that is they want, they want to know what their lives are going to be like, and they can't translate necessarily between a list of projects to that. Well, also like a, a calculation that says we'll save every commuter an extra 30 seconds. Right. It, and the reason they use that is it's a huge production jump right. across society, but it, again, it doesn't really give you But is anything. 30 seconds worth, you know, uh, what's more important, 30 seconds or my quality of life? And, and so the question and what people vote on is not, you know, what is my commute 30 minutes or 31 minutes or do I have 14% or 16% percent of parks in this city? They, they make decisions for all kinds of other things. And do I, I fell in love with somebody. I went to college there my family's there. Um, I got a job and it happened to be there. I mean, people make decisions for all kinds of things. Maybe they just like it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why people make decisions. And so if we talked about the future of cities in those contexts, why do you love this place? Why do you want to live here? And then what are the places, what are the things that we have to do to achieve that kind of vision? And, um, and then put, and then start putting those tools to place. So I think if we had crafted the T-SPLOST around that kind of a vision, then we, we would certainly be, uh, have been more successful. Or, or you do it the real Georgia way where you just say, do you love puppy dogs in America? If so, vote for this <laughs> and don't explain to anybody what it is. I mean, yeah, I can't tell I you how pe- many times you've looked at it, a ballot of it, but yeah. they were trying to be honest. So unfortunately. I don't know. I don't being know. sarcastic. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's interesting thing about six pitch is it also touches on what you were talking about earlier about how planners operate in all kinds of different modes, and it mm-hmm. sounds like the yeah. kind of plan there. I know, and I know you've done very diverse things in your other uh, walks of life, from right. think tank stuff yeah. to reports, is working in those whatever modes you can. Kind yeah. Of. I, yeah. So the idea is to sort of cast a wide net and do lots of different kinds of things and everything from sort of traditional kind of planning, um, you know, master plan, you know, physical planning stuff, which is what I've historically done, working on, if not maybe the Beltline, maybe other projects like the Beltline, either on the client side of that, the sort of public sector side, or uh, on a design team. As um, a consultant. Yeah. yeah. But also, you know, uh, everything from maybe political platforms or um, film or, um, you know, I'm co-editing a magazine right now, uh, an art magazine, art papers, an issue, an issue of art papers magazine for next year about yeah. transportation. And so that's kind of fun. And so, but the common theme is, and all this kind of variety of work is ideas and vision primarily around the places that we live and the structures, um, that are required to live our lives. Right. And then it sounds, it always sounds kind of overwhelming when you start talking about that, but it makes what sense with some of the things we've said about how the city is the cult, the culture, the context that we operate in, and but we also shape that simultaneously. So yeah. it becomes something where every way in your life, mm-hmm. there's a feedback loop between you and the environment, and it yep. kind of starts working. So there, obviously, there becomes thousands of ways to in, engage it and right. and change right. it. Yeah, and you know, so some people, you know, obviously, I'm pretty attracted to people who are interested in those ideas, and I think that's a gr- part of the cultural momentum. There's a there's a growing group of people out there who are interested in that yeah i think that's one of the things that's been really exciting about being in atlanta is seeing a growing number of people who are design literate and Mm -hmm. are um 
consciously aware of how their built environment impacts them, which is yeah. very different than where the city was even 10 years ago, but going yeah. back 20, 30 years yeah. ago. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think the Atlanta Beltline plays a, plays a, has played a role in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear from young people, especially all the time, and the Beltline is either the reason uh, they are staying here or the reason they moved here. Um, and so that's pretty, that's pretty exciting to see. And, you know, for my own family, you know, I grew up, like we said, on 285. That was my worldview. Yeah. My kids are growing up with the Beltline as their worldview. Yeah. Um, of course we ride our bikes to the grocery store, dad, you know, that's yeah. it's Atlanta. Of course that's what we do. You know, that, and that perspective and being able to have that kind of expectation for their lives, you, it helps you. I mean, it gives you a lot of hope that, you know, looking ahead at, you know, climate change and spiraling inequities and, you know, political polariza- polarization yeah. that we might actually have a chance of, um, of s- resolving some of those things and, and, and taking like, like the conversation about cause, you know, taking the, taking the problems we've created, create, taking the mess that we've created and using it as instead as an asset in the transformation of our communities into something that's better than anything we might have be able to imagine right now. Yeah, I think what's so interesting about urban design and, and architecture and other design is, is it can never make anything happen. We talk about all these things, right. inequality and stuff like that. But what it does is it either um, exacerbates your attempts to fix it mm-hmm. or eases the way to fix it by lowering thresholds. Because what you're really doing is you're getting in and not dealing with the results, but changing the fundamental conditions right. under which it happens. Yes. And that's, I yeah. think sometimes we talk about that and people are like, you're crazy and architecture yeah. isn't going to make somebody yeah. happier. And you're like, well, maybe not, but yeah. it's going to shift the sure balance is. of how their life works together. And yeah. they're going to be more likely if it's yeah. done well to find yeah. the balance that they want. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, um, talk, I talk about this too a lot of the, the belt line, um, certainly a sort of design at a city scale and it is, uh, it does that. It's not, it's not, the Beltline is not the change, you know, the Beltline itself. I mean, that's it's just a, fairly minor. The, yeah. what's the change, the Beltline compels change. Mm-hmm. The Beltline compels the, the new apartments and the restaurants and the life of it, you know, the, it compels the lantern parade and all these other, you know, exciting things about that are happening in the city that it provides the infrastructure for change and for people to live their lives in a new way. The Beltline itself is sort obviously the physicality of it is a transformation of an old railroad into mm-hmm. this new thing, but and it's beautiful, you know, beautiful and it and it's um, you know, it's it's important, but it but it's the vehicle for change. It compels that change. Yeah, it com- combined with the other things you talked about yeah. changed the underlying condition, yeah. which people yeah. who are still the same people respond right. to it appropriately. Yeah. Right, and um, and not only locally, not only immediately on the adjacent properties or adjacent communities, but you know we live right here on Krog Street, and um, we there are people parked outside of our house every day um, from Cherokee and Gwinnett and you know Henry County, and they're unloading their dogs and their strollers, and they're getting out on the Beltline, and they're you know and we welcome it. It's awesome because they're seeing the city in a new way they're you're, they're they're changing their perspective their sort of stereotypes about the city they're spending their money in the city yeah and then they're and then they're going back to their communities and they're looking around saying how can we make this place into something that not not, not in the same way but somewhere that is uh, how can we have that kind of quality of life or achieve that here 
Yeah, that the so message that, is really spread. So the pro project is not only changing the physical city; it's changing the way that we think about the city. Yeah, and that's what's really uh, common across all these these other projects that I'm researching in the country. I like I like the idea of how that shifting thought and um, how cities are put together mm -hmm. is uh, impacting your children in the way the internet impacted millennials. Oh, like yeah. you and I grew up at a time when yeah. nobody had the internet, right? And then we got out of college and everybody had the right. internet. And millennials have just always had it, and they right. don't really. Yeah, they don't know how to make yeah. plans. They yeah. don't know how to say meet me here yeah. at this time. Yeah, and that that year in Paris, I didn't even have email. You know, yeah, like yeah. We, we we I ran down the street, uh, called my parents on the payphone, and then ran back to my apartment, and then they called me on that phone. And there was some trick to beat the you know long distance international oh, calling or yeah. something. It was yeah. ridiculous. We did, yeah, and but, now you can just FaceTime with your parents, and you know, in that sense, it's a it's kind of a tragedy because you need that. I think. Kids in college need that separation, but yeah, technology yeah. has totally changed the way that you we live our lives, and certainly changed the way that we use infrastructure. And looking ahead, I mean, with vehicle automation and all those kinds of things coming, you know, that's going to be another whole another whole round of change. And that's where that again, that open ended planning idea, as opposed to the old deterministic, right. is helpful because it's yeah. more likely to absorb yeah. those changes. Right. Um, exactly. So your name is most associated with the Beltline, mm -hmm. which we've established has had lots of fingers in it, actually. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And you briefly hinted at this earlier. There is another work that you're pretty much solely responsible for, which is your book. Oh, yeah. Which, when did it come out? It has not come it out. It has not yet. come it's out. Not, you finished it, though. You're done yeah, writing it. Monday, I turned in the copy edits. Uh, <laughs> oh, <really>? So, <laughs> I, supposedly, after that point, I can't touch it again, but we'll see. Um, I Yeah, I'm really excited. It's coming out in March 2016. It is uh, called Where We Want to Live, and it's a narrative. It's a story. It's about the, this relationship we've been talking about between infrastructure and the way that we live our lives. It talks about, um, it introduces the, that idea um, from that year abroad in Paris. It mm -hmm. talks about my community in Chambly. Um, it talks about, the, it tells the story of the Atlanta Beltline. It connects it to all these other projects happening around the world. Um, and then it extracts some lessons from that and looks at the future of cities. So we'll have to add that to our, our, our must read list of Jane Jacobs and triumph of the city Absolutely. and defending yeah. space yeah. and, uh, books you need to know to understand the world you live in and how it's put together. I'm, I'm super excited about it and I've learned a lot about myself in the process. So it has been, a, it's been a lot of fun. Right. Well, I've never read, wrote, written a book, but mm -hmm. I understand it. I probably have said this before cause I repeat stories. Winston Churchill had a line that said, at first, writing a book is a, a pleasure, and then it becomes a chore, and then it becomes a burden. Yeah, and finally, well, it becomes freedom when you're done. Yeah, you know, it's been a it's been a lot more work um, than I ever imagined it would be. Um, but I did get to a point. Um, it, I guess it was, it was Monday night. I I, would, I finished it Sunday. You know, I finished my copy edit Sunday, mm -hmm. and then I had all day Monday to kind of just sit there with it and like, you know, polish it up and tweak it. And I, it was such a luxury for the first time in this whole process to have, you know, a few hours to just sort of live with it and look over it. And if like for the first time I saw the whole book as a, as a whole, you know, I could never, it was all a bunch of, a bunch of pieces you could actually before see the pieces put together. Yeah. And then sort of spend some time making sure that it was sort of coming together. So, um, yeah, it's been fun. It's always a great moment, no matter what you're working yeah. on to see it come together and yeah. it actually fits the way you thought it would. Yeah. Cause there's always, no matter what you tell the client, there's always a little bit of doubt that yeah. it's actually going to work out that <laughs> well, way. Well, and if, and, and if there wasn't, you wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't be learning anything and you wouldn't be advancing yeah. anything. So you yeah. have to do that. I, I think we're good though. I think that's, you feel good. What's that? 
about um, this conversation. I think we I think that sounds like a nice place <laughs> to wrap up. Is there anything you were uh, thinking of? Uh, no, I think that's great. I All appreciate right. the time to talk to you. All right, thanks so much. Um, and we'll see you around on walking the streets of Atlanta. I will be out there. Yep. Bye.